1 through 9, chapter 44, 14, 18, 24 through 34, and chapter 45, 1 through 9. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them and he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Then Judah went up to him and said, oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let your not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. 
and he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God, the word of the Lord. We are in our series on the book of Genesis, and we're getting close to the end. Uh, Genesis ends with the story of Joseph, and uh, we read a very long passage. It actually included sections from three whole chapters, and the very end of this passage is the climax of Joseph's whole story. Um, And I'm going to recap that story for you in just a bit, but before we do that, here's a question. Why should we bother spending time looking at this? Why is this passage in this particular story we read, why is this so important? Well, let me ask you a question, Uh, maybe actually a couple of questions. And the first is this, Um, have you ever experienced hurt over something that's been done to you in the past? Maybe it was something little that just happened to you last week. Maybe it was something really big that happened to you years ago. Um, But like, you know, an old sports injury, you've never really gotten over it. It just kind of stays with you. Maybe it was something that happened to you with family members or people in your neighborhood or some other people in your life, and it's just never really let go of you. You've got hurt in your life over something that's been done to you. Or let me ask you this. Do you ever experience guilt over something that you've done? And I understand in our culture that word guilt can be kind of controversial, especially when we connect the word guilt to the concept of sin, In our culture, it's very common to say that guilt and sin are just outdated expressions of a primitive religion, and we should be free of all that stuff by now. But the problem is we're not. And so the big question, the question this passage wrestles with is, what do you do with that? What do you do 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 when you have all these things in your life, things that have been done to you, things that you've done? That's the big question this passage wrestles with. How do you find freedom and healing from all the hurt and the guilt in your life? This story shows us. In fact, as I was studying it this week, I saw something I, I, I hadn't seen before. All of the commentators, all the scholars, they were all saying the same thing, especially in this passage, that one of the big themes, one of the big words in Joseph's whole story is this concept of recognition. And not recognition in the sense of approval, but recognition in the sense of awareness. It says twice at the very end of our passage, I mean at the beginning, that Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. Recognition is a huge theme in this story. And here you've got these brothers, and they're all, everything is a mess. They're all unreconciled with one another, and they've got all kinds of deep hurt and wounds and pain and grief in in the back of their lives, in the back of their past. And the question is, how do they come to a point of healing and freedom from that? And the answer is recognition. 
There has to be a recognition of three things. In this passage, we see it. There's a recognition of God's purposes. There's a recognition of God's methods. And there's a recognition of God's grace. A recognition of God's purposes, his methods, and his grace. And we see them all here. So first, there has to be a recognition of God's purposes. Now let's recap the story, all right? Joseph was um, one of 12 brothers. And their father, Jacob, um, he made Joseph the favorite. Joseph was Jacob's favorite child, and and Jacob's favoritism to Joseph turned Joseph into a spoiled, arrogant, narcissistic brat, Um, but it also turned the rest of Joseph's brothers into hateful, bitter, hardened, spiteful, jealous people. In fact, they wanted to kill Joseph, and they almost did, except at the very last minute, Judah, one of the brothers, speaks up and says, no, let's just sell him into slavery instead. So Joseph ends up in slavery in Egypt, and then through a series of twists and turns, he becomes the prime minister of Egypt because he was able to interpret a dream of the Pharaoh, a dream that said that there's going to come a famine into the ancient world, and it's going to possibly wipe out the ancient world unless somebody does something about it. So Pharaoh, in gratitude to Joseph, makes Joseph essentially the prime minister of Egypt, and he puts him in charge of all the grain. And then along comes the famine, and Joseph's brothers are back in Canaan, starving with their father Jacob, and Jacob sends him to Egypt to buy grain. So here they come, and they bow down in front of Joseph, the prime minister, and as the story said, they don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. Um, But they don't recognize him because it's been 20 years, and the last time they saw him, he was a teenager. So here they are in front of Joseph, and at first, Joseph gets pretty rough with them. He accuses them of being spies. And they say, no, 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 we're all brothers, the son of one man. Ten of us came here, our our youngest brother's back home, and one of our brothers is, well, he's not around anymore. They're talking about Joseph, although they don't even realize that Joseph is standing right there in front of them. So Joseph says to them, no, that's a bunch of malarkey, and I'm throwing you all in jail. He puts them in jail, but then he lets them out a little bit later, and he says, look, I'm going to do something for you guys. I'm going to send you back home with some grain, but I'm going to keep one of you here as a hostage. And I want you, if you want to get more grain, then you're going to have to bring back this younger brother that you say exists. And that way I'll know that you're telling me the truth. So the brothers go back home to Egypt, I mean to Canaan, to their father Jacob. And while they've been gone, over the course of all these years, uh, Jacob um, used to have Joseph as his favorite son. But now in the, when Joseph disappeared, he made Benjamin, the younger brother, he made Benjamin the, the favored son. Jacob loves Benjamin. He dotes on Benjamin. He can't bear the thought of being without Benjamin. So the brothers go back and they say, hey, the man gave us grain, but if we want to go back and get more grain, then we have to bring Benjamin with us. And Jacob's like, you are not taking Benjamin out of my sight. The last time I entrusted a younger brother your care, it did not end well. He's not going to send Benjamin with these brothers. But a couple of years go by. The famine continues, and they end up starving again. So Jacob relents, and he sends Benjamin with the brothers back to Egypt to get more grain. And so they come to Joseph again. And at first, things are going pretty well. Joseph's being kind of cool to them. He, he treats them to a feast. He gives them more grain. He's being very kind to them. In fact, he even puts all of their money, their silver, back in their bags before they're getting ready to head back home to Canaan. Um, And so he sends them on their way, but at the very last minute, unbeknownst to the brothers, Joseph takes a silver cup. It's his silver cup, the prime minister's cup, a very special cup. And and he secretly puts it in Benjamin's bag. 
and nobody knows about it. And then he sends some servants chasing after the brothers, and they overtake them, and they say, someone stole the cup. Who did it? And they search the bags, and they find the cup in Benjamin's bag. And so they all go back to Joseph, and Joseph says, look, I'm a fair man. I'm not going to keep you all here, but this Benjamin here, since he's the one who stole the cup, he's going to stay a slave here in Egypt for the rest of his life. Now the rest of you guys can go free. And it's at that point that Judah stands up. We read it. He stands up and he offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin so that Judah would stay in prison in Egypt and Benjamin can go home to safety. And it's at that point and only at that point that Joseph now reveals himself to his brothers and tells them who he is. It's, a, it's a, an incredibly dramatic scene. It's this amazing reunion. And the, the, the brothers begin to experience healing and resolution for all the guilt and the hurt and the pain that has gone on over the past 20 years. But how does it happen? The very first thing that had to happen was there had to be a recognition of God's purposes. So for instance, you see it here. In the story, um, what is God doing in this story? Big picture, what's God doing? At the very end, in verse 5, it's on the last page of, of our passage, Joseph says, God sent me before you to preserve life. In fact, he repeats that three times. It's, it's one of the main things that we find out. Joseph is saying, God sent me here. God sent me to Egypt to preserve life. God sent me to Egypt because God wants to save the world from starvation. I would say that's kind of a big deal. God is saving the world. And Joseph recognizes God's purposes here, but it starts at the very beginning of the passage. On the first page, notice in verse 6, it says that Joseph's brothers came and they bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. So they didn't recognize him, but he recognized them. And in verse 9, when Joseph sees his brothers bowing down to them, he, he realizes, it says, Joseph remembered the dream that he had dreamed of them. Joseph remembers the dream. That sets this whole story in motion is when Joseph remembers the dream. What was the dream? 20 years earlier when he was just 17 years old, Joseph had a dream that one day his whole family would bow down to him. Now, there's no way at that point he could have possibly known, you know, all that that meant. All he knew, all anybody knew at that point in time was that this family's a mess. I mean, this family... They would have been like the stars in a reality TV show called World's Most Dysfunctional Family. I mean, poor parenting, multiple wives, favoritism. It had ruined everybody in the family, so much so that the brothers actually wanted to kill Joseph. And then at the last minute, they decided to sell him into slavery instead. And so here he is, Joseph. It's 20 years later. He's been through incredible suffering. He's been a slave. He's been in prison. He's been in captivity. He's been forgotten in jail. He's been falsely accused. He's been through all kinds of horrible suffering. But he's also gone from being a spoiled, arrogant, narcissistic person to becoming a man of integrity and wisdom and courage and character. So when he sees his brothers bowing down to him, um, he begins to realize, he comes to this recognition, this awareness that God has been using everything that happened to accomplish his purposes in the world. And let me tell you, it's not just to save the world. Because here's a question. Do you think that if he wanted to, God could you know, probably have saved the world without dragging Joseph and his brothers into it? Of course he could. But in the midst of his purpose to save the world, 
In the midst of this story that we've been looking at, it takes God three whole chapters, two whole years, all this stuff that he's doing in the lives of these messed up brothers. What did they deserve, these brothers? They deserve to be thrown into jail for what they did to their brother. They deserve retribution, but God is not looking for retribution. He's looking for redemption. Or we could say it this way. God is not just doing something in the world. He's doing something in their hearts. God does not just want to change the circumstances of your life. He wants to change you. So have you ever heard about the difference um, between task-oriented people and relationship-oriented people? There's a whole thing called, you know, task-oriented versus relationship-oriented leadership. A a task-oriented person is someone who's very focused on the specific goal and accomplishing whatever the task is at hand. Relationship-oriented people are very focused on nurturing and loving and caring for the the people that are involved in whatever the specific task may be. So here's the question. Is God task-oriented or relationship-oriented? The answer is yes. He's both. And you see that in this passage. That means that God doesn't just want to change your circumstances. He wants to change you. For instance, there's that story in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. It's about a father named Jairus who comes to Jesus. His little girl is sick and she's about to die. And so this father comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, please come heal my daughter. She's about to die. So Jesus goes with the father. That's the task. It's very urgent. Jesus is going with this man to change the circumstances of this man and his little girl. But while they're going, they're in the middle of a crowd, a large crowd, And there's a sick woman in the middle of the crowd, and she touches Jesus and gets healed without Jesus knowing about it. And so Jesus, in the middle of this crowd, he stops the whole procession, halts it right there in order to find out who this woman is and have a little conversation with her. Now, can you imagine how this would have felt for the father? I mean, he's standing there waiting for Jesus to have this conversation with this woman while his little girl is at home dying. In fact, she could die at any moment. And in fact, while they're standing there, the unthinkable happens and some people come from the father's house and say, your daughter's dead. Why bother Jesus anymore? Now, the way the story ends up is Jesus, of course, he goes and he raises the girl from the dead. The task was gonna get accomplished either way. But the father didn't know that because Jesus had more going on in that passage than just the task of healing the man's daughter. He wanted to do something in the father's heart as well. Because this father came to Jesus with just enough trust to get a healing from Jesus. He came for a healing. What he ended up getting was a resurrection. This father had a medium-sized trust because he had a medium-sized Jesus. What he ended up with was a far bigger trust and hope and confidence and assurance in his life because what he ended up with was an infinitely bigger Jesus. Friends, God doesn't want to just change the circumstances of your life. He wants to change you. He doesn't want to just accomplish a task in your life. He wants to do something in your heart. You see, with his father, the the outcome of his circumstances was exactly the same, wasn't it? He got his little girl back. The outcome was the same. The, out, in, the outcome in his circumstances, that is, the outcome in his heart was vastly different because his experience of Jesus was infinitely bigger. 
Friends, if you want to find freedom and healing from all the hurt and the guilt and the pain in your life, things that you've done, things that have been done to you, the only way that can happen for you to find freedom and resolution for all the unresolved pain in your life, and listen, every single person in this room has unresolved pain in your life. The only way you can find freedom and healing from that is to first come to a greater recognition of God's purposes in your life. God does not just want to change the circumstances of your life. He wants to change you. He doesn't want to just accomplish a task in your life. And that's hard for us because we live in a very task-oriented world, don't we? I mean, it's all about the task. And it begins when you're two years old. You got to go to the right school to get the right grades, to get the right degree, to get the right job, to get the right position, to get the right salary, to get the right home, to get the right spouse, to get the perfect family, to get the perfect home, to get the status and the title and all the acclamation of the world. Everything we do in this world is task oriented. But God is not just accomplishing some tasks in your life. He's doing something in your heart. And the first thing that has to happen in our lives is we have to come to a greater recognition of God's purposes in our life. But secondly, we have to come to a recognition of God's methods. Because have you ever noticed that certain things keep coming up in your life, like challenges or issues or problems or struggles? Kind of like a lesson you didn't learn the first time, and it's like, You ever think to yourself, why does God keep messing with me? Why would he just leave me alone? Why does he keep putting this thing in my life and forcing me to deal with this thing I don't want to deal with? The simplest way to explain it, it actually what God is doing in this story, the simplest way is in the New Testament letter to the Hebrews in chapter 12. It talks about discipline. It says, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor lose courage when you are being reproved by him. God is treating you as his children. If you are left without discipline, you're orphans. All discipline for the moment seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Our fathers disciplined us for a short time at their pleasure, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. That's what God is doing in this story. It's discipline. The problem is when we hear that word discipline, we think discipline equals punishment. But that's not what God is doing here. Remember we said earlier, God is not after uh, retribution. He's after redemption in this story. The Greek word for discipline that Hebrews uses is this word paideia. Uh, We get our word pediatrics from it, which means the care of children. Or we get our word pedagogy from it, which means instruction and learning, things like that. Uh, Paideia discipline What that does is it creates situations by which a child can grow from immaturity to maturity. That is very different from punishment. In fact, that is the exact opposite of punishment. As we said, it's not about retribution. It's about redemption. So here's the question. How does God do this paideia discipline in our lives? The answer is, back in that passage I just read to you, it says that discipline yields the fruit of righteousness. That's character. Discipline yields this fruit for those who have been trained by it. Discipline does its work by training us. Now, that word training is, the, is where we get our English word gymnasium, and it means almost the exact same thing. You know, when you go to a gym, you go to do some training, how does that work? You're, you're, it's good for you, right? It's healthy, it's building you up. But how does training at the gym actually work? The same way it works in this story. Training at the gym produces the results it produces because it's two things. The first is it's painful. 
If you're doing the exercise correctly, it's going to bring a certain kind of pain into your life, right? That, that it, you're literally tearing your muscles down in order that they can be built back up again. In fact, um, it's the same thing here. In order for God to build you up, he has to bring a certain kind and amount of pain into your life. But it's not just all pain. Like at the gym, right? you do a set, it's painful, but then you rest. It's pleasurable. There's pain and there's rest. There's pain and there's rest. It's the same thing in this story. So when we first read this story, you look at what Joseph is doing with his brothers, the way he's treating them. It's easy to think, you know, it's like a cat toying with their prey. He's being kind of spiteful and mean and vengeful and, and harsh with them. But when you really start looking, there's also a lot of kindness. There's also a lot of affection. There's also a lot of, of generosity with what he's doing. What's going on? The very best explanation of God's methods in this passage is from uh, one of the best Hebrew scholars in the world. I think he's passed on now. It's a man named Derek Kidner wrote a very short but incredibly insightful commentary on Genesis that's been of great help to me. Here's what Derek Kidner says about what God is doing in this passage. He says, At first sight, the rough handling of Joseph's brothers has the look of vengefulness. Nothing could be further from the truth. Behind the harsh pose, there was warm affection and overwhelming kindness. His enigmatic treatment was a kinder and more searching test seen in the growth of quite new attitudes in the brothers as the alternating sun and frost broke them open to God. That's it. That's what's going on here. The sun and the frost, the kindness and the harshness, the, the, the sternness and the generosity, all of that was breaking their hearts open to God. It's the same with us, right? You know, if God just treated us with all sunshine and kindness, that would spoil us. The same way that Jacob spoiled Joseph. It was all kindness. It was all sunshine. It spoiled Joseph. But if God treated us only with frost, only with the harshness and, and the severity, that would make us hard and bitter, just the same way that Jacob's favoritism turned his brothers into hard, bitter, jealous, angry, hateful, murderous people. God brings both the sun and the frost, both the kindness and the severity into our lives in order to break our hearts open to him. So first, God's discipline works by, by bringing some pain into our lives, by bringing some, some consequences into our lives. But secondly, it works because it's repetitive. You know, to go back to our gym analogy, when you're training at the gym, you don't just do the exercise once and then you're all over it, right? In order for it to really work, you have to repeat and repeat. And you have to do it over and over and over again. There's a repetition of the exercise. That's exactly what's happening here. Joseph is repeating, he's recreating the same circumstances that happened 20 years ago. I mean, what happened to those brothers all those years ago at the beginning of their story? Their father made Joseph the favorite. He was all sunshine to Joseph, but he was all frost to the brothers. And I mean, just to be explicit, Jacob was a horrible dad. I mean, he was a really horrible father. He acted like Joseph was the only son in the world and he treated all the other brothers as if they didn't even exist. We have to be clear about the fact that what happened to these brothers was horribly wrong. It was wicked. But here's the question in the test. How did they respond to that wrong that was done to them, their father's favoritism? They sold their brother into slavery and then lied to their dad that he'd been torn to pieces by an animal. That was wicked too. They sacrificed their brother Joseph in order to save their own skins. 
And now here it is all these years later, and Joseph brilliantly, he recreates the same exact situation in their life. Dad is still playing favorites. Benjamin's the new favorite now. And the big question, the big test is, what are you going to do with your younger brother, boys? Are you going to sell him into slavery to save your own skin? Or are you going to do things differently this time? And it's amazing. Judah steps forward and he, uh, he starts talking to Joseph. It's the longest speech, by the way, in the whole book of Genesis. But his speech shows that the discipline of God has actually been doing its work. It's breaking his heart open to God. And you see that, first of all, in the way that Judah talks about his father, Jacob. At the very end, oh, actually, it's right in the middle in chapter 44, verses 30 through 31. Judah says, as soon as I come back to my father and Benjamin is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and we will bring down the gray hairs of our father with sorrow to the grave. Now, here's what's so amazing about this. Judah has come to a place where he is in full recognition of his father's favoritism. He's totally and utterly aware and open about the favoritism, the wicked favoritism of his father, and yet he's no longer controlled by it. Did you see that? The more he owns it, the less he's owned by it. He is getting free from the bitterness of his own life. But even more than that, he's becoming free from his own sinful response to the favoritism of his father. Because instead of sacrificing his brother so that he could go free, which is what he did the last time, this time he sacrifices himself so that his brother can go free. And it's only at that point that Joseph can reveal himself to his brothers because the discipline of God has finally broken their hearts open and done its work. And friends, it works the same way in our lives as well. First, you have to come to a recognition of God's purposes in your life. That God doesn't just want to change the circumstances of your life. He wants to change you. But secondly, you have to come to a recognition of God's methods in our life. That means that he's going to bring some pain. He's going to bring some consequences into your life. And a lot of times it's easy for us to get anger and self-pity in our lives because we're thinking, God, why do you keep doing this to me? Why are you messing with me? Why does God keep doing this to me? Why can't God just leave me alone? He's bringing the same thing back into your life. He's doing the repetition in your life, bringing you back to face that pain, to face that hurt, to face that grief, because he knows that unless you face those things, unless you come to a deeper awareness and recognition of those things, you will never find freedom and healing from them. Friends, that is the scariest and most dreadful thing to us, but I'll, let me tell you, really, the scariest and most dreadful thing that God could possibly do to us is just to leave us alone. Just let you have the life you want and leave you alone. We don't want to look at that stuff. But God will keep bringing consequences into your life. God will keep bringing you back to the same issues, the same challenges, the same struggles, the same pain. Because the pain and the hurt and the things in your life you least want to look at are the things you most need to look at. Because the only way you'll be able to find freedom and healing from them is by dealing with them and letting God go deep with you in those places. Most often, we would rather do anything but that. It's too painful, it's too shameful, it's too dangerous. We would rather do anything but that. But the only way to freedom and healing is to let God do that in your life. Now, how does that actually happen? It's the last thing we need to see. We've seen we have to come to a recognition of God's purposes. We have to come to a recognition of God's methods. But lastly, we need a recognition of God's grace. 
Because how does this family get healed? You can see throughout the passage, Joseph, he, he wants to reveal himself to his brothers. He's constantly weeping. He's constantly yearning. He's constantly wanting to make himself known to them. But he can't do it. He can't reveal himself to them. They can't experience reconciliation until Judah makes himself a substitutionary sacrifice for his brother Benjamin. In other words, the only way this family can find reconciliation is for someone to bear the judgment for all the hurt that has happened. You know, this is the first time in the Bible, actually, that you see somebody substituting themselves for another person. But it's not the last. Judah's substitution and the reconciliation that resulted from it simply point us forward to a far costlier substitution and an infinitely greater reconciliation. Because, friends, on the cross, just as the only way this family could be reconciled was if someone bore the judgment for all the hurt that had happened, so also the only way that we can be reconciled to God was because Jesus bore the judgment for all the hurt we've done and for all the hurt that's happened to us. Because on the cross, friends, Jesus became the true and ultimate Judah. Judah looked at his father Jacob and he said, my father's life is bound up with his precious child Benjamin. Bound up with the life of this boy. And the only way they can remain bound up with one another is if I am bound up in prison. Judah was willing to become bound up in chains so that his father could remain bound up with his precious child. In the same way, friends, on the cross, Jesus Christ was bound up in the cosmic chains of justice so that we could be bound up in the heart of the Father, so that we could experience the warmth and the love of God, so that we could experience reconciliation with God. It's the only way it could happen. You see, for Jesus to do that means that he becomes the ultimate Judah, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate substitute on our behalf. Friends, the only way that happens is if you see what Jesus did for you on the cross. That's the gospel because that's grace. And understand something, grace is not the opposite of justice, it's the fulfillment of it. A lot of times it's easy to think, well, you know, grace, grace only works because it ignores justice. People will say, you know, what about all these evil people in the world? You mean to tell me that, that somebody can live a horrible life, be a horrible person, be an evil, wicked person their whole life, and then at the very end of their life they repent and turn to God and they receive all the love and forgiveness of God as if nothing had ever happened? How's that justice? That sounds like, like turning a blind eye to justice to me. That's not justice. Friends, it is. Why? Because grace doesn't heal the hurt by ignoring justice. Grace heals the hurt by absorbing the justice. Because that is exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. The gospel is the only way that God can discipline you without destroying you. Because on the cross, Jesus absorbed all the justice so that we could receive that loving paideia discipline of God, so that we could receive the warmth and the love of God, so that God could bring just enough and only just enough pain and consequences into our life to turn us into something great. That's what he's doing. Friends, religion can't do that for you. Religion says if you live a good life, if you're a good person, if, if you do all of this stuff, then God will love you and accept you. Religion says you have to discipline yourself. You have to reform yourself. You have to punish yourself. You have to be a good person, clean yourself up, live a good life, and then and only then will God love and accept you. That's religion. But the gospel says, no, no, no. 
Look at this story. Look at these brothers. They're not trying to reform themselves. They're not trying to discipline themselves. They're not even looking for God. And yet God gets to work in their lives without their permission, without any effort on their part, without any request on their part. He gets to work in their lives by grace because that's the gospel. Friends, recognize God's purpose in your life that he doesn't want to just change the circumstances of your life. He wants to change you. Are you willing to let him get in there and do that? If you are, it means that you're going to have to also recognize God's methods in your life and allow him to get not just deep with you, but deep into the pain and the hurt and the shame and the bitterness and the guilt and the envy and the jealousy and all the things that cloud our souls. We have to be willing to let God get down in there and allow us to come to an awareness of it, to come to a recognition of those things and allow him to get in and start working on those things by bringing the pain up in our lives and breaking our hearts open to God. It is a hard process. It is a difficult process, but it is God's loving discipline in your life to make you into something great. The very best explanation of this I've ever heard actually comes from C.S. Lewis in his wonderful little book, Mere Christianity. Here's how he describes it. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. If we let him, God will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. He meant what he said, nothing less. It's the paideia discipline of God. Jesus received the judgment of God so that you could receive that loving discipline of God and he could turn you into something great. Is he doing that discipline in your life right now? Be encouraged. He's treating you as his child. Let's pray.